Let both sides unite to heed in all corners of the earth the command of Isaiah to undo the heavy burden and let the oppressed go free. And if a beachhead of cooperation may push back the jungle of suspicion, let both sides join in creating a new endeavor, not a new balance of power, but a new world of law where the strong are just and the weak secure and the peace preserved. All this will not be finished in the first 100 days, nor will it be finished in the first 1,000 days, nor in the life of this administration, nor even perhaps in our lifetime on this planet. But let us begin. These words from JFK's inaugural define what would become the themes of his brief presidency. Justice for the oppressed, detente, strength with justice, security for the weak, and the peace preserved. But because there is no preparation for the burdens and responsibilities of the presidency, it would take Kennedy 900 of his thousand days to reach his apogee. With the death of his infant son as a catalyst, the final hundred days of the Kennedy presidency, which began 50 years ago this month, would become the capstone of Camelot and the defining time of a promise unfulfilled and one that certainly would not be achieved during his time on this planet. This is the period looked at by noted author and Kennedy historian Thurston Clark. Thurston Clark has written 11 widely acclaimed works of fiction and nonfiction, including three New York Times bestsellers. His articles have appeared in Vanity Fair, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. He's a recipient of the Guggenheim Fellowship, and it is my pleasure to welcome Thurston Clark back to this program to talk about JFK's last hundred days. Thurston Clark, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Great to have you here. This book begins with the death of, of Kennedy's son, infant son, Patrick. Talk a little bit about that and the time that Kennedy spent literally at his side until he died. Yeah, the... Um Patrick was born uh, prematurely. Now, a, a child that premature would have lived, but in 1963, they often didn't. Uh, Jackie was in the uh, Otis Air Force Base Hospital on Cape Cod. Um, a Kennedy flew up to Boston. His, uh, Patrick was sent by uh, ambulance up to Children's Hospital. Kennedy flew up. For the next 36 hours, uh, he spent a lot of time with his son, in fact, he was even with him uh, holding his hand when the boy died. It was a tremendous uh, real shock to him. He was looking forward to having another child. It was going to be another son. Um, and the pregnancy had already brought him and Jackie closer together that summer. Um, and he immediately burst into tears, wept for 15 minutes in the hospital, and then cried again at Jackie's bedside. Uh, the funeral was extremely traumatic for him. He tried to pick up the funeral, uh, the um, coffin, and, and carry it out of the, of the uh, chapel. Uh, Cardinal Cushing had to uh, dissuade him from that. He came back, uh, cried again with Jackie, and then finally uh, collected himself, and he said, Jackie, you know, we can't have this atmosphere of sadness um, permeate the White House. We can't have this happen. 
nor can we have it affect the work we have to do together. And this phrase, the work we have to do, really made a huge impression on her, according to Jackie's mother. It was the first time he talked about things that they were doing together and about having a partnership. Um, after that, there was, uh, of course, a lot of their friends that have commented and journalists that they seemed closer after Patrick's death. Some of it has been dismissed as wishful thinking, uh, ex post uh, Dallas mm-hmm. people wanting to believe that they were closer. But there were real signs that things were happening. There was uh, the, the hand-holding in public, which had never happened before. There was uh, also the uh, uh, incredible charade that Jackie uh, initiated in the White House. She'd invited a guest uh, to stay with him at the end of October, and she decided she wanted to be alone with Jack in the, in the family quarters, and he agreed. And so they pretended that they were renovating all of the guest rooms, and they had the White House staff throw drop cloths over them and leave paint and paintbrushes around, and then showed the guest where they, the guest where she would have stayed and apologized. So there were things that went on, and finally, cli- uh, the climax, at least, for me, is Jackie acknowledging the, what had happened in these hundred days and uh, saying to a close friend of hers, as related to me, um, but, uh, by someone who knew them both well, she said, I think we're going to make it. I think we're going to be a couple I've won. Um, and there are other things, of course, throughout this period. But uh, I, I think there's no doubt that their relationship, uh, that Patrick changed their relationship and changed it for the better. How much did it have to do with Patrick and his death, and how much was that simply a catalyst for the way that Kennedy had changed in the time of his presidency, the way he had grown, the way he had settled into the job in some respects, and the failures that he had experienced along the way? Yes. Well, you know, I the... Uh, in the book, I refer back to the poem that Robert Frost wrote for the inauguration, and he couldn't mm-hmm. deliver it because of the glare from the snowbanks and the sun. The last line was, a golden age of poetry and power of which this noonday is the beginning hour. Two days after the inauguration, Frost goes to the White House, and he gives Kennedy a copy of the poem and reads it to him. And uh, as Frost leaves... He says to Kennedy, be more Irish than Harvard. He said, poetry and power is the formula for another Augustan age. And Kennedy writes in a note to Frost, it's poetry and power all the way. But, you know, it wasn't poetry and power all the way in the first couple of years of his presidency. There was plenty of poetry, but he didn't marry the power of the presidency to that poetry until he gave these two famous speeches in the spring, in the uh, uh, late, I'm sorry, in the June of 1963, first the American University speech in which he calls for uh, negotiations in Moscow for a limited test ban treaty, and the next day a largely extemporaneous speech about civil rights. And these two speeches are what Kennedy is trying to, uh, both of them address the two greatest threats to the American Republic, a race war, racial conflict, and a nuclear war. And Kennedy is uh, busily working in his hundred days to bring these things to fruition. The, the Test Ban Treaty is ratified by Congress, and he gets the Civil Rights Bill through the House Judiciary Committee. What was it that gave Kennedy the confidence to make these two speeches, to bring these two issues to the fore, issues that he might have been reluctant to, that he had been reluctant to previously? Well, the American University speech is a direct result 
of the Cuban Missile Crisis when he and Khrushchev had almost brought the world to uh, had brought the world to the brink of a nuclear war, and they were both scared about it. There was a secret correspondence between Kennedy and Khrushchev over the next six or eight months preceding the uh, American University speech, but it was certainly a fear of a nuclear war, and the. Uh, civil rights bill really uh, was a very personal thing for Kennedy. A lot of it uh, came, of course, he'd been a great disappointment to the civil rights leadership in the first two years of his presidency. He hadn't introduced a civil rights bill, and he hadn't been willing to challenge Congress on this. Um, and I think that, um, as with many Americans, Kennedy was horrified by the televised images out of Birmingham, Alabama, and the horrific uh, use of force by the police and fire department, the fire hoses and the dogs, and um, that kind of spurred him on to make this sudden decision to do this. You know, he he his uh, approval rating was over seventy percent before he gave the civil rights bill and introduced this. Before he gave the civil rights speech and introduced the bill, and afterwards it went down to fifty six percent. So this was really for Kennedy. It was his finally. It was his profile in courage moment. It was him uh, marrying the power of the presidency to the poetry of his words, and both of those speeches were very poetic. In many ways, it reflected the, the different sides of Kennedy, both the hard-nosed politician, the practical politician, and the closet romantic that Kennedy was. That's right, yes. You're absolutely, you, you, you've got it, particularly with the civil rights with the civil rights speech and the civil rights, his attitude towards civil rights, because, of course, a couple of months later, he's welcoming the civil rights leaders to the White House after the march on Washington. It's a great triumphant moment for them, and they sit down to talk, and they're pushing him to add things to the civil rights bill, to make it tougher. And he's afraid if he does this, he's not going to get it through. Having Congress, having finally... You know, finally done what the civil rights leadership wanted, finally sent this bill through. His fear is that he's not going to get it passed. And so he gives them a kind of long lecture about which congressmen are going to support the bill and which aren't, and he sends them out to try to persuade the liberal and moderate Republicans to vote for the bill. Once he'd made this moral choice, then the pragmatic Kennedy took over, and he wanted to get the bill passed. It's interesting that emotions ran so high during this period. I mean, you talk about it in the context, obviously, beginning with, with the death of Patrick. But even in that crucible, signing off on, on the coup against DM. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, that was a, a perfect example of, uh, in fact, one of the benefits of what I do in the book. I think uh, a couple of reviewers have said that this is the first time that someone has kind of inter woven together with Kennedy the personal and the political and the presidential. Uh, and I think they do illuminate each other. Um, it was uh, about uh, 10 days after Patrick's death that he was having a very a, a difficult weekend up in Cape Cod in Squaw Island in this rented house and Carolyn was very upset by Patrick's death and was acting up and he seemed to be the only one who could calm her and she spent a lot of the weekend in his lap um, and it was raining outside and he kept reading and rereading the condolence letters uh, and at this time he got a request to approve a cable um, sent, that was uh, had been drafted by uh, uh, Abel Harriman and other of his foreign policy team, that essentially gave a green light to the generals in Vietnam to overthrow President Diem, who was in a lot of trouble because his harsh crackdown 
on Buddhist protesters at the time. Now, this is the kind of uh, Kennedy had learned from the Bay of Pigs disaster and from the success of the Cuban missiles, handling the Cuban missile crisis, that the best way to reach a decision like this was you got all your advisors together in a room and you let them argue and hash it out and you listened to them and you asked a lot of questions. He didn't do this. He signed off on the cable and he tried to rescind it a couple of days later and there was a lot of back and to and fro, but he couldn't do it. Basically, then his position on the coup was that uh, he didn't seem to think there was anything immoral about uh, going after one of America's allies. But if we did it, the, he wanted the coup to succeed, and he was afraid, well, as with the Civil Rights Bill, that the coup would fail, uh, and it would be another Bay of Pigs. There was also a lot of conflict within Kennedy himself with respect to Vietnam. On the one hand, he was in the process during his final hundred days of withdrawing advisors, and yet he said in a television interview how he believed in the domino theory. Yes, well, that's the, the, the television. I go into this in, 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 in some detail because a week before, he had given an even more famous interview to Walter Cronkite in which he had effectively pulled the rug out from under Diem and said that the Vietnamese had to win the war for themselves, that we couldn't do it. Uh, and more or less implied that if the present government in Vietnam couldn't do it, there better be another, there should be another government that could. A week later, he seems to backtrack with Huntley Brinkley and, and, and affirms that he, the domino theory, his belief in the domino theory. But I point out in the book that he was uh, hours away that same day from meeting with his real nemesis uh, on the test ban treaty, which was Scoop Jackson, uh, who was a very hawkish Democratic senator, uh, who was undecided about the uh, test, ratifying the test ban treaty, and it was felt that he was incredibly influential and that it wasn't just his vote, but he could bring eight or ten votes with him either way. Uh, Jackson felt very strongly about supporting Diem and, and, uh, um, in, in the Vietnam War, and, and also that Vietnam was an important conflict. So the last thing Kennedy wanted to do was wave a red flag in front of um, Scoop Jackson uh, just hours before the meeting. The weight of everything else that Kennedy did, his comments in public and in private, and his actions before that show, to me anyway, that he would never have approved the sending of combat units to Vietnam. To what extent did Kennedy's fear and, and genuine paranoia about the military and about their perception of him play a role in all of this? Well, the, it, it really started, first of all, he was a junior officer in World War II. And the junior officers, uh, like, like Kennedy, were very skeptical of the big brass and, and, and uh, some really uh, made some caustic comments during the war about Admiral Halsey and other people that he came into contact with. So you had that to build on. Then you had the Bay of Pigs disaster in which all of the military brass uh, recommended um, going ahead with the operation and then even supporting it with American planes when it looked like it was going to fail. They all told him it was going to succeed. It was an operation that Eisenhower had planned, the CIA the same way. And so from that, he had a tremendous, uh, his skepticism of the, of the brass was magnified and increased even more during the Cuban Missile Crisis when they all wanted to go in and bomb the missile sites immediately. They wanted a preemptive raid on Cuba. Uh, and if he'd taken their advice, there probably we now know there probably would have been a nuclear war because the, the missiles were operative and the Russian commanders had the rights to fire without even getting approval from Moscow. 
So, uh, and during that time, uh, Curtis LeMay had a, a more or less a, a accused him of being an appeaser, and they talked about Munich. Um, so Kennedy, yes, Kennedy was very skeptical and um, also was not unaware of the dangers of a military coup, particularly because of a journalist who he was friendly with, Fletcher Nabel, had just written and published in 62, seven days in May, about a president who was overthrown because he's being uh, going to sign a treaty with the Soviet Union, which is just what Kennedy was going to do in 63, did in 63. He really began to believe passionately that the Cold War could end, that detente was indeed possible. Absolutely. And I think it's only um, that the Tasman Treaty is just the beginning, uh, the start of a whole bunch of things that happened that fall. One of them is Kennedy's proposal for a joint Soviet-American moon mission. Get rid of the space race, we'll go to the moon together. And he said that in a speech to the General Assembly, that uh, the UN General Assembly resulted in huge uh, headlines. It was big news then, and we've kind of forgotten about it, kind of Dallas wiped things like that out. Um, you've got um, the wheat deal. He agreed to sell surplus wheat to the Soviet Union. Uh, he has a couple of meetings. He has a meeting with Gromyko in which they talk about having more agreements, and Gromyko presses him for more agreements, and they finally agree on opening more consoles and direct flights. Um, and then there's this curious thing that happens at the United Nations, again in, the, in September, where Dean Rusk says to his counter, Secretary of State Dean Rusk says to his counterpart, Soviet Foreign Minister Andrei Gromyko, let's go take a walk in the country. And so they are driven out to somewhere in the suburbs of New York, where there presumably will be, where there are no interpreters and there are no can be no listening devices. And Rusk turns to Gromyko and he said, "The president wants me to tell you that he would like to reduce, unilaterally reduce American. I don't think unilaterally. He wants to reduce American forces in Europe, and he can't. Uh, he doesn't want this to come out because he knows our NATO allies would be very distressed." And he wants to talk, you know, he wants to explore this with you and with Khrushchev. Um, so there are all kinds of things like that. That's why you get, the, as I said, the um, British Foreign Secretary appears before the UN uh, in the fall and talks about in a speech that we're witnessing the beginning of the end of the Cold War. The, um, the Journal of Atomic Scientists pushes their hands on the doomsday clock. You know, that thing what mm -hmm. goes to midnight, and midnight is nuclear war. The furthest it's been from midnight since the beginning of the of the nuclear clock. So there's a lot going on besides just the Tasman Treaty, a lot to give a lot of people a lot of hope. And I think that this hope, uh, the hope of some kind of a rapprochement with the Soviet Union, settlement of the Cold War, a hope that there'll be a civil rights bill, also explains the intensity of the mourning that follows his assassination. And how did he think this would play out in the upcoming election against Barry Goldwater? He was—he uh, thought he was going to—he uh, thought he was going to easily beat Goldwater very badly. I mean, he made kind of funny comments to people that are well known about, "Give me good old Barry, and we won't have, I won't have to leave the Oval Office." He was uh, the person he feared the most was uh, Governor Romney of uh, Michigan because he was a, a more of a moderate. He thought he could appeal to a wider audience. He was worried about Rockefeller too, but Rockefeller because of his divorce wasn't going to get the nomination. But uh, Romney was the one that uh, framed him the most, but uh, he was uh, all, for, all for running against Goldwater. 
and he was going to make peace, peace and prosperity. Peace was going to be one of the great issues of the '64 election. He'd already planned that. Uh, I detail in the book the trip that he takes out west in September of '63 when he when he's dutifully going to all these western states that he thinks are all Goldwater territory, and he's talking about conservation and ecology subjects that bored him. Um, and his speeches, the first couple of days, his speeches are terrible, the worst he ever delivered in his presidency, some of the reporters said. Finally, he's in um, Montana in Billings, and just in an introduction, um, in introductory remarks, he remarks about the test ban treaty, and the crowd goes crazy, applauding and whistling, and suddenly it's a revelation to him that even in these conservative areas, people want peace. They've been... They're terrified by the uh, the Cuban missile crisis and how close everybody's come to being incinerated. And then from then on, he has this heroic, fantastic trip to Salt Lake City. He goes to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, um, uh, Church. Uh, he's applauded there. Uh, and he, he, from then on, he doesn't talk about ecology, something he knows nothing about. He talks about peace and the Test Ban Treaty. One of the other things you point out is that he was pretty clear in those final hundred days that he was going to replace LBJ. Yes, um, this first is uh, this came in a, a book that Evelyn Lincoln, his secretary, wrote in um, published I think in '68. It was her second book. Uh, it was received with great skepticism at the time. Bobby Kennedy remarked to uh, Arthur Schlesinger, "Can you imagine my brother ever talking, having a conversation like that with um, Evelyn?" Um, there's a little bit of sexism there. Evelyn Lincoln was no dummy. She had a BA from George Washington and had been two, had two years of law school. Um, so what happened? The conversation happened exactly as Evelyn Lincoln described it in her book. I found the her shorthand notes in her files in the Kennedy Library, dated a memo pads as the White House, and there it is. The conversation exactly as he had said. He had said to her. Uh, that he was thinking of replacing, he was going to replace Lyndon Johnson with Governor Terry Sanford of North Carolina. The question is, was he serious or not? And I think, again, material that's recently been released, uh, Jackie's own oral history and also uh, Ted Sorensen's memoirs show that Kennedy was just very fearful of what a Johnson presidency could mean. He was estranged from Johnson, and he planned to, um, he planned to replace him. You know, ten days before, ten days, a week before he said this to uh, to Evelyn Lincoln, they held the first great meeting, of a dozen, more than a dozen, eighteen people in the Oval Office or the you know, in the Cabinet Room to plan the 1964 election. And guess who wasn't there? Lyndon Johnson. Why? Because as Ted Sorensen wrote later, he didn't have the quote full confidence of everyone in the room. I think the everyone included President Kennedy. But it also meant that Lyndon Johnson didn't really understand everything that you've written about, didn't understand this transformation that had taken place with Kennedy in these hundred days. Yes, um, I, I think he was left behind, absolutely. And two uh, quick illustrations of that. One was that he was against the, against the uh, selling surplus wheat to the Russians. Uh, which was part of Kennedy's detente. And, in fact, Johnson said to Ken O'Donnell, Kennedy's advisor, this is the worst political mistake Kennedy's ever made in his presidency, and make sure you tell him I said that. Well, not, not too smart there. Um, and the other thing that happened was uh, he was uh, Johnson went off in early September for goodwill 
uh, tour of Scandinavia, kind of a really kind of useless trip, um, just uh, you know showing the flag. But he decided he wanted to go to Poland, uh, and so he went to um, Kennedy in in uh, Cape Cod and suggested he had uh, Poland. Of course, Kennedy was horrified because the last thing he needed was Johnson kind of going and and trying to tweak the Soviets' nose in 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 Poland behind the Iron Curtain. So he forbid him to go, and then he asked to see the speeches he was going to deliver in Scandinavia, and he heavily edited them. I tried to find copies of those speeches in the Johnson Library. I couldn't find them. I couldn't find Kennedy's editing. But I think we can assume that he probably took out anything that was likely to upset uh, Khrushchev. Thurston Clark. The book is JFK's Last Hundred Days, The Transformation of a Man and the Emergence of a Great President. Thurston Clark, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. I've enjoyed this a lot. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 